What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. With Captain America Civil War dominating the box office and our review already in the can, we went with some counter-programming this week to Not-So-Gay Paris circa 1941 for the French-language animated fantasy April and the Extraordinary World. Plus, the first film in our contemporary Nordic cinema marathon, Swedish director Roy Anderson's Songs from the Second Floor. That and more, though possibly nothing American, ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. Visit squarespace.com film to start your free trial. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. This month, Mubi is collaborating with one of the world's premier festivals for short movies, the International Short Film Festival Oberhausen. They're going to bring you four new films that are currently competing at the festival in Germany. They range from Finland to the Philippines, from a documentary about aristocratic hunting to apocalyptic Shakespeare. These short films represent the terrific range of subjects and style debuting at the festival. Here's my question. Are they shorter than six minutes? <laughs> Otherwise, only, I can't, I can't fit, fit them in. in. I, know. I can't do it. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners get to try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. Josh, I have never been to Sweden, though I have been briefly to Helsinki, Finland. That's close. Based on Roy Anderson's songs from the second floor, my impression of Sweden is it's a country where everyone looks like they just got fired from the circus. I don't know how accurate that is. <laughs> That's, but That is so dead on. There are not a lot of Anita Ekberg-like figures no. in this film. <laughs> very pale, very pale there in Sweden. We're going to get to the debut film in our Nordic Cinema Marathon in just a little bit. We'll also talk to Steve Procopi, a.k.a. Capone, about the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival. Some great titles and some great guests coming to that fest. First, though, I belong to the very, very small cult following of Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. It's a steampunkish sci-fi fantasy set in the 1930s. So there was no way I was going to miss the similarly titled, designed, and themed new animated feature, April and the Extraordinary World. In those very rare instances where I get some blowback for a negative review, I'll often point out a simple truth that, frankly, should be self-evident. I'll always prefer to have a positive experience and devote my energy to praising a movie instead of tearing it down. We're putting that philosophy into action this week, Josh, having decided to forsake our previously planned review of Ben Wheatley's class warfare satire High Rise, starring Tom Hiddleston, because, well... Neither of us cared much for it. And speaking only for myself, I didn't feel like I had anything particularly compelling to offer 
the conversation. You did write about it over at your website. Any nuggets of wisdom you'd like to throw out? No, I mean, people can go check that out if they want to get the details. But I think the main point is it'd be one thing if one of us really cared for it. We could get into a debate over it. But yeah, I mean, it if it just didn't engage either of us in a way that it has engaged some other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has not been panned by any means. So maybe if we had had a little more time, what we should have done is brought one of those people on. That would have been good. Um, But yeah, why not go ahead and focus our energy on something that we both really liked? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we found in this case. Fortunately, we had an alternative in the form of an animated alternate history from France that might have intrigued me more from the start had it been sold by the title that popped up in my opening credit subtitles, April and the Twisted World. Much better title. What extraordinary adds in alliteration, it loses in allure and accuracy. Throw out the one-sentence plot synopsis, April, from G-Kids, the U.S. distributors of several acclaimed international animated films, including Song of the Sea and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, isn't merely a sweet fantasy about a teen with a talking cat searching for her missing parents in the City of Lights. This Paris... And this 1941 is a dim, dank place, constantly at war, its citizenry perpetually covered in soot due to the world's overdependence on coal, a result of civilization's greatest scientists having mysteriously disappeared over the last century or so. Josh April is more Orwell than Arietti, steampunk, not Ernest and Celestine. The music by Valentin Hajaj even reminded me of Danny Elfman's collaborations with your beloved mad scientist, Tim Burton. So Twisted might have been a more appropriate descriptor for this world, which was inspired by the graphic novels and style of French comic artist Jacques Tardy, but does Extraordinary still apply? Absolutely. The fun thing about this movie for me was how you kept getting a new wonder with a new twist or a new turn, or frequently just a new vehicle that they imagined. And then all of a sudden the vehicle, or in one case, the mansion, sprouts arms and legs mm-hmm. and starts walking around. Here, There's a Miyazaki touch there, right? Howl's Moving Castle. That's drawing upon a little bit. And then it goes one more. That mansion with the arms and legs dives into a river and starts swimming. And this is just one of those little animated details. Why I love animation so much is because something like this can just give such character to, in this case, a mansion. Mm -hmm. It starts swimming exactly like a person would, like, you know, the butterfly or something like that, spreading its arms out ahead and kicking the legs. And uh, there's just something so delightful about that. And so even though it does have that, you had the perfect words for it, dim, dank. I mean, the suit and the steam in this movie, almost every scene you feel like it's it's drifting in front of your Mm -hmm. eyes because they managed to create that atmosphere. Despite all that, it does have this extraordinary sense of imagination and surprising you. You don't know what to expect. The characters themselves, we can talk about that. This main character, April, voiced by Marion Cotillard. I I think she's, you know, very compelling, a no-nonsense figure. Mm -hmm. But really, for me, it was all of the imaginative stuff going on in the background um, that held me in thrall. Yeah, me too. And it's a little bit ironic that we did away with high rise because I wanted to talk about something that hopefully I had more to say about it. And I don't know that I have anything to add to what you're saying (laughs) or to the conversation in general about this film, except to say that it's just a really fun movie. It's so much fun from start to finish. And this is one that I was able to watch with my kids. I don't know how your two daughters reacted to it. I'm guessing they went for it like you did. We sat down and watched this as a group and it's of course in French. It's subtitled. 
my five-year-old is not reading fast enough that he could certainly keep up with what was being sure. said. And he sat there riveted the entire time. And I think you could do that with any really good animated movie or maybe even any good movie, period, right? If it's really told well and the visuals are dazzling and if the visuals move the story along and give you the information you need, then you don't really need to read exactly what the characters are saying. He was with this movie from start to finish. And it was fun to see their reactions, too, because I was reacting similarly to some of those touches. The house that you talked about that turns into this spider-like creature and then it goes into the water... That's just one element of this film where it's constantly surprising and delighting you. You think you've got a handle on this world. And then all of a sudden that happens. Even later in the film, in the last 20 or 25 minutes, you think, okay, now I really have a handle on this. And then you learn something new, another piece of the puzzle. You finally do get an answer to the question of where have all these scientists gone. And that surprises you as well you never would have seen it coming it gets really weird yeah it gets really weird but in a great way and you finally do just accept that could happen in this world in this type of imaginative world you have to accept that anything is possible and to speak to what you were saying about that house and how it is almost like a character when the house gets damaged a little bit we'll say that and it's maybe not going to be quite as functional as it was before my kids actually groaned Hmm. they were really disappointed i think they wanted to see more of it and they felt for it like you would feel for a human character or an animal any kind of character in a movie like this where you just wanted to see more from it and you felt something for it my kids did yeah that's right and that makes a lot of sense because you know this april figure is even though she's compelling, she isn't like a, a big character, a no. big presence, but they do a lot of the characterization in other ways, like the house and also in the cat, the talking cat she mm-hmm. has. Darwin, who brings a lot of wit there, and uh, there's a Miyazaki touch uh, from Kiki's Delivery Service, kind of a snide supporting cat character. Um, and, you know, I also thought it had strains of Miyazaki in uh, the overall theme that uh, it's exploring here, which is, you know, pretty basic and maybe idyllic, you could say, of some Miyazaki films where it's placing mankind's obsession with technology specifically to use towards warfare with maybe the the natural world, the peaceful natural world. And that's the dichotomy we get here because these scientists are all being used to work towards a weapon, essentially. And uh, there's almost two sides to this. It's a conspiracy movie in a lot of ways. And I like how the story did spell that out and did put these characters in the middle of, of this tension in a way that kids can maybe somewhat understand, even though... And my kids did both like it quite a bit. It's pretty much up their alley. But this whole alternate history element is a little bit of a mind bend Mm -hmm. for kids who are just learning history the first time around, you know. Um, But there are some wonderful ways they do this. Essentially, the the Napoleonic Empire is still in charge in France uh, is what's happened here. And so April's lab slash hideout towards the beginning is in, I'm not sure which... Napoleon descended it is, but a huge statue, Mm -hmm. a huge figure of one of these emperors, and she lives in the head. And it's just a really wonderful way to communicate this altered history Mm -hmm. 
with image so that when she goes to bed at night and she turns out the lights, it's like the statue is blinking at yeah. night. It looks like that. And and the other touch is that there's two Eiffel Towers. I know, which I, they never explain. I was going to ask you. I was you never able to figure or, out okay. why, but we certainly all notice watching the it's movie. It's just such an arresting visual to tell you that okay, this is familiar, but not quite. Yeah. And then again, the fact that everything is powered by steam or by coal, they have these steam ships essentially hanging from wires that go across the city that enter in to one of the towers. That's mm-hmm. kind of like the land. And just to re-envision things that are familiar in a, that sort of way. You think it's a way. traditional train station or that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then it's not, and it's com- and it's completely different, and um, yeah, just another another way of it was funny when when B the younger one got out, especially it took some time to be like, well, this is what happened, really, and this is what was changed, mm-hmm. and and you know that's kind sort of a fun conversation to be able to have too, sure. just in terms of not only the history but opening up how art can play with history mm-hmm. to communicate new ideas. Yeah, the only thing I came up with for the two Eiffel Towers was maybe that because this society and this country is not progressed to the level that it should, it was as if the government, the French Empire said, well, we've got this one thing that's amazing. We'll just so what's the it? obvious thing to do? Let's build another one. That's good. And I just, like that. And just put it right next to it. I mean, it's the least imaginative, ambitious thing you could possibly do. Right. And so that, that was my only insight into that whatsoever. But what you're talking about in terms of the cable car and what you were saying about the steam and the soot and how you kind of feel that in this film. I like the touch where we hear about that cable car that goes to Berlin. It's how you get from Paris to Berlin. And they explain at one point you hear over the loudspeaker that it's an 82 hour journey. Yeah. And the way you just see how everything works, you're always aware of how it works. So there's a struggle in this alternate world that is always paramount to everything that's done. Even at one point, She's on a moving walkway, and April is, and she sees a poster, and we don't know why initially she's struck by this poster, but she wants to tear it down. But it's moving, so she goes back to tear it down, and there's someone right behind her who then immediately gets angry with her for the fact that she's in his way. So even this little thing she wants to do... Everyone is kind of like automatons just going Mm. about their business. She wants to go back and grab this poster. She can't even do that easily. So that sense of struggle is something that permeates the whole film. And I thought that was interesting. And about April in particular, you were talking about her as a character. I love a little moment that we get in the film where she meets a character named Julius, who is spying on her. He's being forced to spy on her, it turns out, by an officer who is determined to find April and find her family. This is his obsession, and I'll get to more on that a little bit in a minute. But they become fairly close, and there's a moment where she puts on a dress for the first time, and she comes downstairs, and she's looking for him, and she says, how do I look? She wants to get some approval. And this is a female character, let's be very clear, who would ace the Bechdel test, right? Like, she is not in need of a man, she's not looking for a man to complete her, but Despite all of that, despite her skills, despite her intelligence, that doesn't mean she isn't a woman who wouldn't mind some companionship or discovers that she wouldn't mind some companionship yeah, that's really what more than here. yeah, more than she maybe lets on somebody other than just her cat who up until now has been enough. And there is a moment that sets that up actually earlier in the film where they're at this kind of carnival, which isn't that exciting at all in this alternate world. And she stops to watch two people on a carousel 
kissing each other. And the fact that she stops to watch that embrace, it works on two levels. One, I think it shows a little bit of longing inside her, but it also... For me, it reminded me of her parents. Mm -hmm. They looked a little bit older. They looked like her parents. So it works on both those levels. But this is another case where this movie, despite all the action, and there's a lot of action, it takes the time to give us those little insights into the characters. Yeah, and you could say, and it might have been nice if the Julius and April relationship had remained platonic. Sometimes when you see something like that, especially in a kid's film, it's Mm -hmm. just so refreshing that it doesn't have to lead down the romantic path. Right. But I think you're right in that if they're going to go that direction, they they handle it quite well with little touches like you're mentioning. Yeah, and I, I do get your point. And there was a part of me that was really hoping it would do that as well. But I almost saw it as a case where the movie without it would have really lacked only because it's about this drab world. It's about this drab world where people don't have the beauty of love, or at least there we don't see There it. aren't connections. There aren't connections. Yeah. We get rare instances of it, like that couple that she notices. She notices them because they stand mm-hmm. out. We don't see anybody else acting like that in this world. We see a lot of lonely people, a lot of isolated people just like her. And it just worked within the larger scope of this film that this is a couple that we weren't expecting to come together, but the fact that they do just adds another element of, of life. Sure. And I mentioned obsession. It did occur to me that there are a lot of themes being played with here. And at the end of it, it really is just more of a fun movie than anything, I think. But it is a movie about obsession. It's about people who have obsessions and the perils of that, which is fairly customary with movies, of course, that deal with technology. But you take a character like Fizzoni, the investigator who is after these scientists determined even though he shouldn't be to catch them it's his life's goal annette the mother character as well don't want to give away too much but we certainly see in her character that even early on when we first meet them she has no time for delay or messing around or having fun she's there to create the ultimate serum she's all business all the time and the most interesting characters here are the ones who get to mix those who are very intelligent who have this type of ambition but at the same time recognize that there are more important things in life the pops character the grandpa who was late he's a great character who was late because he was off enjoying the world right and that's what we see ultimately from april as well that she doesn't let her discovery or the search for some kind of scientific breakthrough define who she is. She recognizes that family is more important. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of her journey. Her growth as a character is figuring all that stuff out as she's trying to figure out this central mystery that's driving the movie's plot. Mm-hmm. April is currently playing in limited release. It's playing here in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center. If you get a chance to see it, and we hope you do, let us know if you agree or disagree with our takes. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. A pair of extraordinary and maybe twisted performances are surely on tap as we get ready to play Massacre Theater next. Plus, Adam gets an inside look at the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival from friend of the show and CCFF programming advisor Steve Procopi. Film Spotting is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright bizarre, great stories define us. You should tell yours. With simple tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture your story with a captivating website. Start your free trial today. 
visit squarespace.com film. Now, I don't have a great listener website for this show to promote that is powered by Squarespace, but I found an article that I think might be of interest, Josh, to film spotting listeners out there. Many people who I know are filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers, and they're probably looking for a website. And maybe they're thinking, okay, even if I know what tools to use, even if I know Squarespace is out there, how do I make a good website for my movie? Then it turns out just a few years back, Eric Hines, writing for IndieWire, wrote an article called Attention Filmmakers, Here's How to Design a Website for Your Film. And that was a post that came from the Sundance Institute. They basically said, here's what you need to know about designing the look and feel of your film's website. And actually, the article does include some insight from one of Squarespace's experts. So I'll link to that article in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net and encourage you to visit squarespace.com slash film to start telling your story now. Squarespace, you should. Now get this. We ain't partners. We ain't brothers and we ain't friends. I'm putting you down and keeping you down until Gans is locked up or dead. And if Gans gets away, you're going to be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. That, of course, was Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy in 1982's 48 Hours. Now, Josh, I don't know about people like you who were raised more properly, perhaps, but I say buddy crime comedy duo. 48 Hours has got to be one of the first couple of films you think of, right? Hey, I, I saw plenty of movies like this at the neighbor's house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be in the mix. Naughty I, Josh. I think probably Lethal Weapon would have to be the first. Okay. But this would be in the mix. It should be in the mix. 48 Hours would be my choice. And it was one of the options when we posed this poll question to you last week on the show, anticipating our upcoming review of The Nice Guys starring Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. We wanted to know what your favorite crime comedy buddy duo was we gave you some old school options like the lethal weapon pairing of danny glover and mel gibson Merton riggs we gave you nolte and murphy in 48 hours we gave you groden and de niro in midnight run i mean some really good candidates here josh but we wanted to mix in some more recent films like in bruges and hot fuzz and wouldn't you know it apparently our audience is full of millennials because all of our nostalgia picks are getting trounced really yeah now, where does Who Framed Roger Rabbit fall in that? That's a nostalgia pick for a different group, I guess. True. And I'll have to look. If it's beating 48 hours, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to lose gonna, my mind on air. You're going to have to air. start voting multiple like, times. <laughs> you will see me have a meltdown next week while we're taping this show. And just for that, I'm guessing people are going to flock to the website yes. and vote for Roger Rabbit. That so would be great. That didn't work at all. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. You can leave a comment in the poll question as well. And if you do, we hope you do, please let us know where you are listening from. And hey, maybe catch up with 48 hours. I don't know. Why not? We also have some passes to give away, Josh, as we have here regularly in recent weeks. One of the films that made my list of most anticipated movies of the summer. I know you love it when I say the word Wiener. It's, Wiener. In the Wiener. it's the Wiener category. It's not Wiener Dog. It is the movie Wiener, the film that is an inside look at Anthony Wiener's political comeback turn meltdown. It's opening here in a few weeks in Chicago and in select cities. And on Wednesday, May 18th here in Chicago, there's going to be an advanced screening. We have a way for you to win an admit to pass to see that film for free in advance of its release. We would love to share those with you. You can enter now at filmspotting.net. It's right there in the top stories. It's been a while, Josh, but we are back in the swing of Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this. So why shouldn't we get away with it? We'll stack the bodies in the cellar, lock it, Leave quietly one at a time and forget that any of this ever happened. And you'll just 
You'll just go on blackmailing us all. Of course. Why not? Well, I'll tell you why not. <laughs> good shot, Green. Very good. That was Tim Curry as Wadsworth and Michael McKean as Mr. Green in 1985's Clue, adapted from, I guess it was adapted from a board game by Jonathan Lynn, also directed by Lynn. What else? To Jonathan Lynn direct. How about this? My Cousin Vinny. Who knew? One of the eminently rewatchable movies of all time, also directed by Jonathan Lynn. I think Clue actually probably qualifies as well, though I've certainly seen it far fewer times than I've seen My Cousin Vinny. The tie-in between Clue and that show, well, two weeks back, our top five was single location films. It was inspired by our review of Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room. And I suggested that the transition into Massacre Theater might give it away. Sam went with Reservoir Dogs. You've got Mr. Orange and company in that scene. And of course, Mr. Green in the scene from Clue. It was also a tie-in with Jeremy Saulnier's titled Green Room. But alas, Josh, both of those tie-ins were just red herrings. Nathan Mm. in Atlanta, he got it. The tie-in was One Location. Additional tie-ins, you reviewed Green Room, a film about musicians. Several of the stars of Clue also starred in musicals or music-heavy films. Who knew? Well, I, of course, knew that Michael McKean was in This Is Spinal Tap and Light of Day. I knew Tim Curry was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show and... I did forget about Leslie Ann Warren in Pure Country, according to Nathan, one of the most underrated soundtracks of all time. Okay. Another tie-in, according to Nathan, there is a reimagining of the film Clue coming out later this year. How did we miss that in our summer previews? I can't wait for that. (laughs) Nathan says he's a huge fan of the show. It turned him on to so many great films and actors, especially Michael Fassbender and Jessica Chastain. It also inspired me to start taking improv comedy classes two years ago. Good luck with that, Nathan. Wow. Is that the first time the show's inspired someone to take improv? As far as I know. So when Nathan, when someone like Nathan submits that many tie-ins, do they get multiple entries to win the t-shirt? Because they really should. That was a lot of work. I agree. Jim Rybicki in Eau Claire, Wisconsin also did some work here. The tie-in was obvious. Mr. Body blackmails his guests demanding money, and Adam blackmailed a portion of the film spotting listeners demanding they vote for the near the end of his career Scorsese over in his prime Wes Anderson. Come on. By the way, Jim says, I'd love to see Wes's version of Clue. Although Scorsese's Clue would be pretty great too. Hmm, maybe it was a harder pick than I thought. Thanks, as always, for the silly fun. How about that? I didn't even have to convince Jim. He convinced himself. It's that easy. Peter in Nashville. Possible tie-in in Clue, Mr. Body is played by Lee Ving. Lee is the lead singer in the punk band Fear, whose song Legalized Drugs is featured in the Green Room soundtrack. You missed that one, Nathan. Well, I yeah, Nathan missed it, and I did too, because Lee Ving was a performer who was not known to me at all. And then he came up, I think, in the Dave Grohl documentary Sound City about that studio. And Lee Ving as the lead singer of Fear, is one of the performers who comes into the studio. He recorded an album there. He records a track with Dave Grohl. Didn't know who he was. As soon as I saw that email from Peter, I was like, oh yeah, that is Lee Ving. He is Mr. Body, some inspired casting there. And how about that? Had no idea that song was on the Green Room soundtrack. Ginger Hazen from San Diego also recognized Clue. I love this movie, she said. I can recite it almost word for word from start to finish. I wrote a review of it for my high school newspaper, not very timely as I graduated in 1998. (laughs) The piece actually won a statewide journalism award, my first and last journalism award. My friends and I had a Clue dinner party at a fancy old historical mansion in my hometown where we just acted out scenes. I love this. I even watched the Clue-themed psych episode. Meh, but good to see Leslie and Warren getting some work. 
Of course, what's not to love? The House, the mid-century political storyline, the amazing cast, and especially Tim Curry. Yes, he is his own category. However, you guys think this will be an easy one, but what if some of your listeners only saw it in the theater? The ending you referenced might not have been the one they saw. Thanks as always for the great work and bringing us the absolutely delightful film Spotting SVU. A special thanks to Adam for last week's plug of Prince's Never Take the Place of Your Man. Seriously so good, and no one has heard it. Yeah, by far my favorite Prince tune. Thank you for that, Ginger. And I hope that this happens again. I will donate some money from Film Spotting to make a reenactment of that happen, <laughs> where we have a dinner party at an old historical mansion, and you guys just act out scenes. Who wouldn't pay to watch that? Do you do you like those sorts of things? Going to the have you ever participated I've never in one? Done that. You never would, would no, you? No, I probably wouldn't, but I have a feeling my wife would enjoy it. Yeah. Which means I will go to one someday. I admire the people who can pull that off, but as a participant, it would make my skin crawl. Yeah. I, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> the funny thing there too, Josh, were you aware of that? I think I had maybe heard that over the years, but I only saw Clue on home video. So of course I saw all the multiple endings. Yeah. I didn't think about the fact that in the theater That didn't happen, apparently. They only showed one. That does sound familiar. I had forgotten about it, but yeah, Hmm. it does. All right. Well, reach into the film spotting hat, which truly not as brimming as I thought it would be. Either your Tim Curry wasn't good enough. I can't believe that. Plausible. Or my sound effect gunshot wasn't good enough. Definitely plausible. (laughs) Or maybe again, it's the millennial listeners we have out there who didn't grow up like Ginger, like me, like you watching Clue. Oh, I've got a good story before we move on. Yeah. I do have a good story about Clue. I have my own match to Ginger's story. Back in high school, my senior year of high school, Spanish 4, instead of actually learning Spanish, my teacher thought it would be fun to just let us do a final project where we could do anything we wanted, basically, make a, like, make a movie. Okay? okay. So this is back in the old did days, Did it have Josh. to be in Spanish? Yes, it had to be in Spanish. Okay. It did at least have to be in Spanish. But <laughs> it's getting a little worried. We didn't really have to exhibit any proficiency. These are the old days where there's no editing decks. We weren't doing any sure. type of splicing here with anything. So we had to edit basically in camera. We had to set up mm-hmm. our shots so it would come out like a finished product. You want to know the character I played? A made-up character in our Spanish version of Clue. <laughs> I, was, Mr. I was... You were Mr. Azul. No, I was Dr. Amor. Oh my. <laughs> and here's why. They needed a doctor. We needed a doctor in our version of Clue to verify that Mr. Body is dead. So you want... You want to go back to my glory days of acting and and hear my one line? Uh Uh-huh. Here it is. Well, you're going to get it whether you want to or not. Senior cuerpo es muerto. And you you remember that. (laughs) Mr. Body is dead. That's Um, all I had. I would. Brilliant. I will put up film spotting money, even though I don't have control <laughs> of it. To find that VHS that tape for that tape. Oh man! If I think I know the guy it. who has it. Okay, I'm going to track it. it down. That's my close up. That was my one close up. Gloria Swanson. All right. Again, not that many contestants this week for Clue, but reach in and pick out this week's winner. And the winner is, and I'm going to feel bad if I get this wrong because I remember. Ms. Elise Marie on Twitter. I've mm. talked with her there. I'm not sure how to say Elise's last name. Mug? I'm going to say Muggy. Muggy? Either way, Elise, you are the winner. She's also from St. Cloud, Minnesota. Congratulations, Elise, a longtime listener of the show. Send us your stories of appearing in a Spanish-language version of Clue and your address, and we will send you your very own Film Spotting T-shirt. How did I come to this? I'm Claude Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it now, look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. 
we move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, complete with no mangled Spanish whatsoever. Just other Throw mangled lines. Throw a little lines. Spanish in. I That's could. fine. I could. That might make it. Since, since you're so adept at it. Yeah, it might make it a little bit more interesting. But this scene will give you the hint that it does tie in with our review this week. We had intended for it to tie in with our discussion of High Rise. We nixed that. It turns out... It's actually an even better tie-in, I think, with April in the Extraordinary World. This is true. And I'm glad we have these windscreens because this is this could get a oh, little man. messy. And I'm glad you're far away <laughs> yes, from me because yes. this, this really could be ugly if we were any closer to each other. You're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Uh, it, wait. Okay. Let's do it. And action. You are confused, aren't you? Frightened. That's all right. I can help you. Who is this? I'm a doctor. Now you must listen to me. You've lost your memory. There was an experiment. Something went wrong. Your memory was erased. Do you understand me? No, I don't understand. What the hell is going on here? Just listen. There are people coming for you. Even as we speak. You must not let them find you. You must leave. Now. Hello? Are you there? And? Scene. (laughs) So, I think people are going to be very confused because... They're not going to be able to think of a movie that stars Sylvester the Cat <laughs> as the Elephant Man. But I that's could, what you just did. That's what you just did. I could see why he had trouble misunderstanding him. We forgot the phone ring. We did we forget the ring. Tell I listeners. tried to add the there click at the end. There is a phone ring at the beginning. So that will, that will clear oh, yeah. everything up. Yeah, it wasn't clear they're on the phone. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 23rd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. We have this rule in the house, no games during the week and no internet before five either. But when they're on vacation, they have all this free time. What are you going to do? Quiet. Bajame el tonito tú, ah? Mrs. Jardine, we're almost done with this level. Can we have a few more moments, please? That's better. A clip there from the new film from writer-director Ira Sachs' Little Men. It is one of the many very interesting, exciting movies that is playing at the upcoming Chicago Critics Film Festival. And here to talk about that festival, preview it for you once again, is our friend Steve Procopi. You may know him as Capone from Ain't It Cool News. Steve, great to have you back on the show. Great to be back. And great to have this amazing slate of movies playing the festival before we get into Little Men and some other of the most highly anticipated movies of the fest, at least by me. I've got my top five prepared, right. so we're going to go through that. But first, this is the fourth annual festival. It is comprised of films that are recent festival favorites, and some of them are as yet undistributed works. They don't, yeah, they don't have a distributor, there exactly. You go. Or and, and some of them, I think they've all played at some festival or another. There might be one or two okay. now that we're starting to get in because people just know it's that time of year again, mm-hmm. and they'll send us some films and say, well, take a look at these and see what you think. There might be one or two of those in here this year. Okay. It runs Friday, May 20th through Thursday, May 26th. All the screenings are at the wonderful Music Box Theater. So all of our Chicago listeners or people who are close by, hopefully they can attend, make it to some of these screenings. And if you're out there listening across the world to the Film Spotting podcast and there's no chance you're going to see these movies, hopefully we still put some films on your radar. And down the road, these are some movies you can seek out. As I said, this is the fourth annual fest. Take us back a little bit, though. I know we've talked about it in previous years previewing the fest, but what was kind of the drive for this film festival? What 
is the overarching, if there is one, overarching goal to the movies you pick? Well, the there were certain members of the Chicago uh, Film Critics Association that regularly go to film festivals throughout the year. And usually, for the purposes of our festival, that season usually begins with Toronto in September and then goes through uh, Sundance, South by Southwest. Uh, we, we might have even picked up one or two from Cannes at the, that we knew was, we're going to play at Cannes in early May. This year we're at, in late May. So basically any, any festival that isn't in Chicago will take a look at something. We, you know, we put out these reviews of, of these films and get people excited about them. I used to read those reviews before I was going to festivals and get excited, and then you'd have to wait three months, six months, sometimes over a year. Uh, there are still films we played last year that haven't come out yet, so, but they are going to come out. We know that release dates for some of those films are, are later in the summer mm-hmm. or the fall. So we just wanted to give people in Chicago a chance to, to, to look at the greatest hits of the festivals we've been to in the last six months or so. Yeah, that's great. And that's, I mean, there's no, there's no theme. There's no... Uh, there's nothing quite like it. I think we're still the first and only uh, Film Critics Association to ever put a festival together like this, to, at least to this length. And uh, yeah, we're back at the Music Box, our favorite theater in the city. So. Great. Let's get to some of the titles. And again, not surprisingly, came up with the ridiculously inspired conceit of a top five list. So <laughs> my honorable mentions, two of them here. And one of these is a movie that has come up in recent weeks here on the show as part of our summer movie preview. It is Hunt for the Wilder People. It's the latest from Taika Waititi, though it seems like a film that's very different than what we do in the shadows from what I've read about it. It's a coming of age story. You have seen this movie. Are we right to be excited about it? Absolutely. It's one of my absolute favorites that we programmed this year. And it it is and it isn't like films he's done before. It's actually more like the film he did a few years ago called Boy. It was a little more serious. And this certainly has some serious edges, but it also at many times feels like an 80s action movie. It is funny. It is very moving. Uh, I got it. You know, I saw, like I said, saw it. It was a big hit at Sundance this year. Got a chance to talk to Taika at Sundance about it. And uh, he's very proud of it. And we're really happy that it, we I, we couldn't actually believe we got it because we figured it would just be so in demand at festivals mm-hmm. that, but yeah, it was one of the first things we got actually. Another honorable mention for me is the live action version of Beauty and the Beast. And to be totally upfront, it's really just because of Leia Seydoux yeah. in the, I'm <laughs> guessing she's playing the beauty role. She, I think that's her. I, okay. I don't think she's under the makeup, but it's, what's really neat about this film. And, and there's, there, there, you know, there's another one coming out next year, or maybe it's even, no, it's next year with Emma Watson. I mean, they can't stop making this movie and remaking this story. But this is, to me, the, has a very close connection, not just because it's French, but to the Cocteau version of mm-hmm. the film. So to me, it's almost a direct remake of that, but with bigger effects. And it's from the director of, uh, it's a guy who, who did uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf and uh, Silent Hill, the horror film. So mm-hmm. he has more of a genre background. So there's definitely some darker elements to it. But you, you've definitely never never seen Vincent Cassell in a film quite like this before okay. <laughs> as, the, as the Beast. So, yeah, it's a really neat little exercise in fantasy. My number five is another one that's been referenced a few times already on the show this year. It is the Werner Herzog documentary, Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Not much more probably that I need to say about it. It's Werner Herzog and really any project of his is one I'm going to be excited about. Well, especially about. documentaries. Yeah. I mean, he's there. Right. And that's, that's kind of become his super strength, right? Lately. Have you seen it yet? It, no. I, okay. I've seen none of these. Okay. Okay. So it, cause it did actually, this is actually the only film we've ever played 
that has actually played in Chicago once already. It was a little doc festival, a uh, weekend doc festival at the Music Box also a couple months ago. But we had already booked this, and we didn't really want to pull it. We thought it's Herzog. Yeah. We, we love Herzog. There's it's an a, audience for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's all film spotting listeners, but... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, exactly. And it's a little looser in its focus than some of his other films because there's not a single subject. But it, in that looseness, there is, of course, you, you see the theme sort of come together by the end. And it, it's kind of all over the place. But by the end, he pulls it all together. And it's, it's actually quite different, I think, than anything I've seen from him documentary-wise. Pittsburgh, the industrial age, the steel mills are long gone. A new industry has established itself. Here, robots are being designed. This one named Chimp is testing its limbs on its own. My number four is a movie that I'm certainly not basing it on the cast or the director or the writer because I'm not familiar with the writer-director, who is Logan Kibbins uh, and Sharon Green as well. They're going to be in attendance along with the star, who I do know. I watch Silicon Valley every Sunday night and am a fan of Martin Starr, but the closing night film is one I otherwise had no knowledge of. It's a movie called Operator, and it's my number four really just because of the plot description. The the themes that it's obviously going to explore, the subject matter, fascinates me. I'll read from the synopsis here briefly. Joe, played by Martin Starr, is a programmer and self-quantifier who uses the data he collects to make sense of the world and control his panic attacks. He and his wife, Emily, a member of the neo-futurists, are happily married until they start working together on a project that promises to replicate Emily's personality. And it sounds like things maybe don't go as swimmingly as they maybe would have hoped from there, or it at least opens up some larger conversations that uh, end up taking place. So it just sounds fascinating. It's tremendous. And it's all shot in Chicago. Obviously, the neo-futurists are a big theater troupe here in the city that do too much light makes a baby go blind. And and that Mae Whitman is a member of the troupe. So she's a new member of the troupe. And we so we actually see performance but that's but that's almost sort of peripheral to the main story. There's there's elements of Spike Jones's her in this a little bit because which I thought of when I read the description, and that's good. Just just enough yeah. to you know, but not not annoyingly so. Uh, it doesn't feel like he's ripping him no. off. But the it's it's actually because Martin Starr kind of builds just from her voice, from Mae Whitman's voice, which he's trying to use in a I think I believe it's a healthcare automated system and use a pleasing voice. He builds a speaking person out of just clips of her voice saying different things that he records for his job. And and they help him with yeah his panic attacks, like uh-huh. they said. But it's really wonderful. It's not, I mean, it's funny and, and also very serious at times. I should also mention that Cameron Esposito is in the film. She's also in uh, as a small role in the film we're playing right before at First Girl I Loved. She used to live in Chicago. She's a used to be a very big stand-up comic here in Chicago. I think she lives in L.A. now, but she and she thinks she's also in Mother's Day right now, which huh. I won't hold against her. But, but yeah, she's just like a, she's a stand-up comic who has sort of built up this wonderful acting career too. So mm-hmm. uh, she plays one of the neo-futurists who kind of takes Mae Whitman under her wing. But it's a really, really interesting film, and we're really happy. We always try to feature Chicago-based films somehow. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, this was, I mean, this was all shot here. So it's a great closing night film. Good to know. My number three is another one you've seen. It's War on Everyone, written and directed by John Michael McDonough, 
big fan of his last film, Calvary, and you gotta love any film that stars Michael Pena. I mean, he's that good. He elevates anything he's in. This is probably already going to be good just based on the writer and director, but the fact that Pena is in it and the fact that he's going to be there as well for a Q&A, I'm hoping I can certainly make it out to this one. Tell me about War on Everyone. War on Everyone, I saw it, uh, I believe it premiered also at South by Southwest, and we were floored because in this day and age to have a film, a dark, dark comedy about corrupt cops. I mean, Pena is always good and I can always rely on him to be good even in the worst movies he's in. But Alexander Skarsgård is also in this and he he is so dry and funny in this. And I was really, I think that he's really the discovery here. And it's, I mean, McDonough is one of my favorite sort of working directors right now. So, but yeah, if you want to take a chance, and Pena will be a great guest to have. So, but if you want to take a chance on something that might unnerve you slightly, this this is the one. Sounds good. This one, my number two, sounds like it might unnerve me as well a little bit since this director's other films definitely have that effect on me. The director is Ty West. The film is In a Valley of Violence, and Ty West is going to be at the festival as well. A mysterious stranger and a random act of violence drags a town of misfits and nitwits into the bloody crosshairs of revenge. That's the description for In a Valley of Violence. I was a fan of The Innkeepers and an even bigger fan of The House of the Devil. So even though Ty West's milieu is not my preferred genre because as listeners know i'm terrified of scary movies <laughs> yes nevertheless i love his work and i'm fascinated by this movie well you'd be happy to know this is not a scary movie there so you go. Okay. it's not a horror film it is a sometimes violent film as the title might yes. indicate uh but it's not it's it's it takes a very conventional western plot the stranger you know coming into a town and and everyone sort of against him and and he cleans it up in mm-hmm. one way or another so it's Yojimbo. Um, it takes. It, it's not quite that because they don't hire him to do uh, it. But no, he just comes in and sort of in, and does it. And I, I, I'm not going to give away any details. But it's a really fun, interesting take on the western. And I'm, I get excited every time Ty West makes a new movie. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's also one of my favorite directors working right now. Well, my number one is the movie that we heard a clip from earlier, Little Men, from writer-director Ira Sachs, who will also be in attendance at the festival. It's about a pair of best friends, like teenage boys. Do I have that right in this film? Yes. And they have parents who, I guess, get into a conflict over a lease on a dress shop and the toll that it takes on them. And really, this is a case of me just being interested in whatever is next from Ira Sachs after Love is Strange, which was one of my top 10 films of the year. It came out. And so whatever he's up to, and this is a little bit of a departure, it seems like, certainly from the material of his past couple films. Am I right to be excited by this one? It's not a love story. That's how it's different primarily. But it is about a very close friendship between these two boys that meet and you know they're not old friends they're they're fairly new friends but they just connect and one of the boys doesn't really make friends that well so they're his parents are very happy but it's a very realistic look about something that I'm guessing happens a lot in the world but I've never seen a movie made about it which is that when parents fight uh, I should say different sets of parents fight yeah. the kids sometimes are not allowed to be together, even if they're friends. Like the the kids pay the price right. when they have no stake in, mm-hmm. in that's going on. And that probably happens all the time. And I've just, like I said, I've never seen a film about it. And this captures that. And it's tragic. And, and it's in this small little universe, the tragedy is played so well here. Mm. And you're rooting for these parents to get their act together and figure this 
lease situation out. I know it's about a lease. How exciting. But it really is. The drama is is very high. It's actually, I think, one of our most uh, staggering dramas this year. Well, he, he likes to play with stories about leases or at least people who <laughs> yes, that's true. can't can't find a place to live. He's that all was about the, real estate. Yeah, he is. And you know what? It worked out in Love is Strange yeah. for sure. So those are my top five. Any other films on the docket that we haven't touched on that you really encourage people to come out and see? I, I really want to push people to come see our opening night film, Morris from America. Uh, it was a prize winner at Sundance. Uh, I won a screenwriting award, and I think they the jury gave Craig Robinson, the star of the film, who will be here with the film, gave him a special performing award. It's not a comedy, exactly, although it's got some funny things in it, but it's about a, a man and his teenage son who live in Germany, American who lives in Germany because for his job. So the kid has been torn away from everything he's known and is trying to figure out how a, a young black kid is supposed to live in Germany uh, with no friends and how to make friends. And it's more about the kid's struggle, but, but uh, Craig Robinson does a great job of just being like a hard-nosed, tough-love parent. And um, the writer-director of the film is Chad Hardigan, who made a great movie that played at our first festival, actually, called This is Martin Bonner, which did you see that? I don't know if you saw that. I did not. Yeah, it's a it was a well-reviewed film that almost nobody saw. And it played our first festival and we loved it. Highly recommend it. But this this movie, Morris from America, is and I think it also played at South by Southwest. It's just a really heartwarming film uh, about this kid just trying to find his place yeah. in in a strange world. Well, you've got a great lineup on paper. I can't wait to check out some of these films. And we should give away some passes. Let's do it for that John Michael McDonough movie starring Michael Pena. We'll give away some passes. We're not even going to set a number here on it, Steve. That's how generous you are. Yes. Basically, <laughs> email the show, put war on everyone in the subject line, and... Just give us your name, and you might be lucky enough to win a pair of passes to see War on Everyone at the Film Festival. Do you have the date for War on Everyone? I was about to say, yes. It is Saturday, May 21st at 7.15. Okay. At the Music Box. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, with War on Everyone in the subject line. Again, the Chicago Critics Film Festival, the fourth annual Chicago Critics Film Festival, runs May 20th through May 26th at the Music Box. More information about these movies and the full roster of films can be found at Chicago criticsfilmfestival.com or you can look for the link in the notes for this show at filmspotting.net. I will also post my top five there in the show notes at filmspotting.net. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. The first stop in our Film Spotting Marathon on contemporary Nordic cinema, Sweden. We'll see if we can locate Josh and discuss Roy Anderson's 2000 absurdist black comedy Songs from the Second Floor. This week on the show, Josh, repairing our contemporary Nordic movies marathon with some contemporary Nordic music. The band is Sweden's Licky Lee. We have a new donation, Josh, that came to us from J.D. Duran. He is one of the hosts and founders of the In Session Film Podcast. We have both been on that show. We have. J.D. still doing good work. Yeah, they're doing good work. And I don't have the comments in front of me, but basically I know that they were seeing if they could maybe squeeze us on. They wanted to do a little In Session V film spotting. 
sort of <laughs> Batman v Superman style, hopefully with better results than that movie. We will see if we can find time for that. We have two new Buck a Show donors as well. One dollar for every week of the year. Chris always bet on beige Roberts. He says, pay the dealer. And I just love the fact that he's one of those old school listeners that has a Sam Van Hallgren nickname. And speaking of old school listeners, Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania, also donated this week. Adam may be wrong about Keanu and Josh may be horribly misguided about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. But since you provide me such great audio pleasure, otherwise I'll forgive your trespasses and pay the dealer. Also, I would appreciate it if you would mention my new podcast, The Criterion Correction, in which me and my co-host take a look at films released by Criterion. Josh will be happy to know that our first episode was on the Royal Tenenbaums. Keep up the great work. P.S. Here's a cruel twist to Film Spotted Madness 2017. What if you took the two lowest vote-getting Pantheon movies, faced them off against each other, and the losers kicked out of the Pantheon? Mm. Raising the what? stakes of film spotting add madness. More pain. I don't know. I don't know. But little production note here behind the scenes. We have had some discussion, as you may recall, Josh, about the Royal Tenenbaums being an upcoming sacred cow discussion. Ooh, especially as we've been talking about trying to make sacred cows that we both sign off on as sacred cows. Mm-hmm. Those then being anointed and put in the pantheon, like Alien probably should have been. The Royal Tenenbaums might be the first Wes Anderson movie to make the jump. Let's do it. Okay. Wait, haven't we put Alien in? I thought we were going to do that. No. Or did we? <laughs> I can't remember anymore. No, it was really the Linklater movies. The I know we should. It's it was a good the show, Linklater Adam. movies. <laughs> I find it vulgar. <laughs> it was the Linklater movies that we got to after the fact. Alien, we never did officially put in. We'll get to that at some point. I hope we do. A new $5 a month donor, Joshua in Dallas, Texas, also sent in some of his hard-earned cash this week. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you to all of our donors, all of our monthly subscribers. And we will mention one more time, a no-cost way you can help the show rate us on iTunes. I've been seeing those iTunes ratings totals go up, Josh, and it's been great to see. It does make a difference. Here's a recent review we'll share with you from Happy Violins. When I discovered Film Spotting, I had never listened to a podcast. A few years later, I've got six or seven podcasts I listen to every week, and Film Spotting is the one I listen to the most. If you love movies, this is a must-add for your podcast feed. Their reviews are insightful and carefully considered, but never pretentious. I listen to Film Spotting for a glimpse into the far reaches of the art house scene while also getting a fresh and amusing take on the latest blockbusters. Adam and Josh's personalities and tastes counterpoint each other perfectly. Can't recommend this show enough. So you don't have to write that much at all. We thank Happy Violins, and we thank you if you go and you just rate us or you add... A quick sentence or two does not have to be that in-depth, but certainly nice to read comments like that from Happy Violins and from all of our great listeners who have supported us over the years. We're making good on our pledge to do more marathons this year, Adam, by already kicking off our second one of 2016. After considering the work of Elaine May, a filmmaker we were both largely unfamiliar with, we're now concentrating on contemporary Nordic cinema, a region whose recent movies we've dabbled in but could certainly stand to see more of. We're diving in with Songs from the Second Floor, a 2000 film and the first in a loosely connected trilogy from Sweden's Roy Anderson. This was my first film of his, and I did something silly early on while watching it. I wrote down a character's name in my notes as if I was going to follow him. You might meet him in again. In a clearly lined narrative. <laughs> no. It soon became obvious that this was going to be a series of droll, absurdist vignettes, each filmed in a single take with a fixed camera, that depict an ensemble collection of sad people in various states of comic despair. 
One early example, a recently fired office worker clings to his boss's legs as he's dragged down a cold corporate hallway, co-workers peeking at him from their slightly ajar doors. A pointless question to get us started, Adam, because pointless questions are often the most fun. Imagine you committed a crime in Sweden and your punishment was to live in one of the film's miserable vignettes. Uh Uh-huh. Which one would you choose and why? Wow. That is an inspired starting point, Josh. That's a brilliant question. I'll say this. I don't know the answer, but definitely not the backseat of the taxi in the traffic jam. I spend enough of my life in traffic (laughs) that I know for sure I don't want to be stuck in that car, in that traffic jam, which pops up in multiple scenes. It's and at like one it, point, it never ends. Yeah, it you get truly the sense. never ends. It, it, it seems to be going on forever and no one knows why, which fits in with kind of the overall point and theme of this film. And I noticed in one scene, and this is actually the one I would pick, I'd go with the Edward Hopper painting. There's, there's a shot that seems like it's out of Nighthawks, right? Where the character who kind of is the main character, Calais, We see him more often, I think, than we see other characters anyway. He walks in, and his son is there, and there's a woman working at the counter at the diner. There may be one other worker. And at least it looks like they're serving drinks there, Josh. So I can wait out the traffic jam (laughs) by having a frosty beverage, maybe. So I think that would be my answer. I hope you have an answer prepared, because I want to hear it. Well, this this may change your answer, but... I'm going to be there with you, so you may want to leave, but that's where I was going to. Wow, this really is purgatory. (laughs) Well, you're you're right. The first thing they do when Callie walks in is they have a beer waiting for him. So, So, you know, in the scheme of what we've seen in this picture, that's really not too bad. It's about as inviting as it gets. Exactly. I love the Nighthawks reference in it. And overall, I just love, as I do, in every frame of this movie, the composition. Mm -hmm. And here it's multi-layered so that the camera is in the back corner of this cafe, this Mm -hmm. diner. We're looking past the counter where the customers are and the servers, out the window, Mm -hmm. and there is the traffic jam. Right. On the the right window, the traffic is there more in the foreground. The left window, it seems to go on forever. It's an intersection. Yeah. And so it's just a suffocating traffic jam that does go on forever. And as you said, that's something we've already seen in the film. So it just makes it more of an oppressive burden to see it here. And what's really fascinating about this scene is the way, and this is where the movie reminded me of a lot of the work of Jacques Tati, like Playtime. Mm -hmm. Even though Playtime in that with the slapstick has some joy in it. And while there's humor here, I wouldn't say there's any joy in songs from the second floor. But what both Anderson and Tati do is use the depths of those compositions to leave us wondering what's going to happen. Sometimes it's a small little joke that it takes the whole scene to build up and it all relies on how figures or objects are moved around in that composition. Completely. So, so that scene in the diner starts with a woman on the phone complaining about being stuck in the traffic jam before Kale comes in. Mm-hmm. She leaves, he comes in and he starts talking. We could listen to him or we could watch her go out. And, you know, just a very soft punchline is that she gets in her car and we can see that and she just sits there, mm-hmm. right? While while the rest of the scene is going on. And so it is really a masterful work of these compositions that you could just sit and soak in, even though there's no narrative really. There's a very, you know, thin, yes. thin line connecting them, but it didn't matter at all to me because I wanted to see what he was going to do Mm -hmm. with each individual composition. Yeah, what Anderson is doing here is inherently contradictory, I think, because the movie 
I think inarguably keeps us at a distance. It turns us into almost detached observers, especially as that camera is static. So as everyone is on the screen, right? There's no characters to care about. There's no plot to care about. There's little dialogue to draw you in or explain anything. Again, no camera movement and almost no action. There is almost no action. Characters are often very still within the frame. At the same time, It does draw you in and make you more engaged as a viewer because the frames, as you said, are so full, they're so deep, the dearth of action actually heightens it when action does finally occur, and you do get these wonderful surprises in the frame. So you have static shots, and they all are static. I think there's 46 vignettes in this film. The camera never moves, except in one of them. There is one camera movement in this entire movie. It's a tracking shot where it follows two characters moving forward. At the train station, That's it, right? yeah, the train station. It's not very ostentatious at all. But even as the shots are static, the sequences themselves are not static at all because something unexpected almost always does happen, at least in the sequences that are more extended. And this is where the movie finally really clicked with me. It was about a half an hour in where I was still definitely keeping it at a distance. Mm. And even though there were moments like the one where the guy who just got done telling his wife or his mistress, I'm not sure which, that he can't be home with her today on her day off because he's got to go to work. He's been there a long time. He's important. In the next scene, we see him begging, literally hanging on to his boss's leg. He's just been fired and he's trying to get his job back and won't leave. There's something absurd and a little bit comical about that. But even with that, I was still at a distance. And then we get to the scene where Kelly goes to visit his son Thomas in the mental institution. The poet. Yeah, the poet. He has gone crazy from too much poetry, which I could not find this anywhere. I googled it extensively to try to see if there was a direct reference that anyone had drawn between this film and the Danish film that came up recently on the show that I adore from Carl Theodore Dreyer or Det. The character there, Johannes, goes crazy in the film, behaves a lot like Thomas here, mm. except he's certainly more talkative, and we learned in our debt that he went crazy, according to his father, because he read too much Kierkegaard. So I was thinking about that the whole time I was watching this film. But he goes to visit Thomas. He's basically catatonic. And the father walks into the frame. Thomas is sitting there by a window. Then Thomas's brother comes into the frame as well. After him, a doctor walks in. A man in a white coat. He's got a clipboard. Yeah. He's observing Don't the scene. Spoil it. He's taking it. Oh, I'm going to spoil it. It's 30 <laughs> minutes in, and it's the best moment in the film. So he is taking notes. Callie even complains directly to him. So we know this guy is the doctor who is watching how this family dynamic plays out and maybe he'll use it in his treatment of Thomas. We don't know, but he's there. This goes on for three minutes, Josh, before a guy in a tie then starts coming down that hallway, the long hallway with that great depth of field, walking towards the camera. We don't know who he is or what he's about. He walks, he's got two orderlies behind him, and then he says, what kind of nonsense is this? Give me my smock. It turns out the guy staying there is just (laughs) another guy from the mental institution. He's another patient who stole the doctor's jacket, got the clipboard, and is pretending to be a doctor. I'm not even totally sure why it's hilarious, but it's absolutely hilarious. I think it it fits in with maybe that, you know, authority figures throughout this film are revealed to be totally ineffectual. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that the joke is on us as much as it is the characters, we totally buy it. And we have no reason to suspect otherwise. We just accept that he is who he is because he's pretending to be who he is. And that bit of misdirection is so 
brilliantly comedic. Yeah, for me, it's the commitment to it because that's a gag, you know, I, I've, I've seen elsewhere. I don't remember where, but it's not the most inventive gag. But the fact that the buildup is so long and patient and the timing is so perfect. And then even you're right, when the real doctor and the orderlies come down that long haul, it's, you know, you might know as soon as you see them approaching and they look official, like, oh, I, I know what's going on here, right. but it's a long haul. And so it drags that. It's just, it's part of the pacing of this film and the humor too, and how things are recalled as well. I really like the one of the vignettes is a magician sawing a man in half. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And the crowd just watching dispassionately as everyone does a lot uh-huh. of, a lot of, um, you know, ignoring a physical suffering is, is what happens here. And in this case, the magician actually starts cutting the guy on stage. And then this guy shows up a couple of times couple later. Of times, we'll, yeah. we'll see another scene. And then he shows up and he, it just, I don't know why I feel terrible no, laughing. Funny. But he'd sit down at his dinner table and just kind of whimper and hold his stomach. Well, he's in bed and, and, and his <laughs> wife moves. And when she moves in the bed, it like, hurts oh, his stomach. Oh. And like, we shouldn't be laughing at that. No. But something about the placement of it within the other scenes. I mean, this is very much like an intricately staged puzzle so that that laugh is planned out exactly to come at a time when we need it. We don't see him right after. Well, actually, we do. We see him go to the doctor, right? But then there are a couple other scenes before we see him in bed and then a few more before we see him sit down Mm -hmm. at the table. So the timing is important in all this, too. And you mentioned poetry I think, you know, that that's really standing apart from everything we see is this idea of poetry, of art in general, of anything that is not meant to produce a livelihood, a, a living, an earning is what we see a lot of these other people do. The stockbrokers, for example, mm-hmm. or the businessmen flogging themselves in a parade on the street. So poetry stands apart from all that. And there's this recurring phrase that we see at the beginning and also some characters will repeat here and there. It's beloved be the one who sits down. Now that comes from Peruvian poet Cesar Vallejo. So this is a through line. And a lot of this film was supposedly based on yes. some motifs from his work and some direct work that I'm work. unfamiliar with. Right. So it's this was my first but exposure to it. But it feels like it. a collection of poems brought to the screen. Yes, Certainly very more much than does. it feels like a screenplay. And I think what, you know, the, the feeling for me, the you know, the poetry that came to mind for me, though, because of the tenor of the movie was The Hollow Men by Elliot, because combining that traffic jam, combining all this physical suffering going on and the lack of response to it, all these onlookers just watching it and not really doing mm-hmm. much. It This movie, it was really like the world's last whimper to me. You know, it's it's not, there's no bang here at all. No. Anything that happens, but there's just this continual slow whimper that, that carries us through all the way to the final scene when... We should get to, but not really spoil that one if we can. Because the the power that that final scene had to me in terms of being this this whimper, but of a different tenor, uh, really surprised me how how much it affected me, given all that had been going on before. No, I'm with you, and I agree that I don't want to give it away, though it's kind of amusing to talk about this film within the context of spoilers as if there could be any but there is a moment at the end it's another one of those static shots very long scene one of the longest scenes in the film maybe the longest and i'm watching this film on dvd and something does happen visually that is so stunning that i did stop it and i said wait a second what am i watching like i know i'm a little bit drowsy here and this is a film where nothing's happening but i couldn't have just missed that 
what happened. And I had to rewind it and watch how it happened. And it's amazing how your eyes don't really pick up on it the first time. It's a special effect almost that's not a special effect at all. No, it's it practical. purely happens organically It has to do with the depth the scene. of field as it well. Has, Something again, that occurs completely way, way back. That's right. And so it's an illusion almost. It's illusory and it catches your eyes off guard and it then has this kind of spiritual effect when it unfolds. It really is remarkable. I'm with you completely. And I've only seen Playtime. That's the only Tati I know. So I can't go too in depth on the comparison, but obviously the static shots, the depth of field, that's all there. Very clearly tying in with Playtime, the sense of being in an office as well and just kind of going about your routine and the way that's captured in playtime we get that here as well the first real reference of that is that shot you mentioned or we talked about with the man clinging to the leg of his boss because you do see a few people stick their heads out or at least one and then of course he just closes the door because right. he doesn't want to get caught in any of this but the way that hallway goes on forever the way all the doors are symmetrical yes. and they line up perfectly and they are all for the most part closed that feels like something straight out of Tati but where I think we get Anderson out Tatiing Tati is in a scene near the end of the film where all of a sudden all of these travelers and we have no idea where they're going, they all show up at the same time as if the airport just opened. It's Mm -hmm. an airport or a bus station or something. And all we see in the left side of the frame is a bunch of workers. They're all wearing the same outfit, like they're kind of flight attendants. They're all at the counter. On the right side of the frame, we see all these people walk in with huge amounts of luggage. Towering. Towering amounts of luggage, as if in keeping with... This overall notion of the film, I think, they're all really trying to get somewhere, but they have no idea where they're going. There is no sense that they really will get to any kind of destination. I don't think they will ever reach the counter. It becomes almost like the Sisyphus-like moment where they're just going to keep pushing the rock, in this case, their luggage carts, and then they'll probably just go back and start over. But they're never going to get to any kind of destination. But that is that moment that just catches so perfectly the comic absurdity of human folly and that longing to try to have some finality to have a point to have a destination and simply not being able to reach it we hear these lines throughout the film that come up again and again what's the point of staying where there's only misery there's no point well that's life right that's certainly life for these characters there's no point necessarily in staying but what choice do they have we hear a couple different characters at different times say i guess i won't be around then they're talking about the future they're like i won't be around then i better do something now but they don't know how to act no one actually knows how to do anything so you talk about there being this whimper there is this sense of resignation to everything that hangs over the film while at the same time they are all going about their lives. They don't just resign themselves to sitting there and doing nothing. They try to go about their jobs. They try to get somewhere. They just get stuck in the taxi cab and they're never going to get out of it. For me, that's part of the end of the world feel too, that at the luggage, with the luggage at the airport or wherever it is, and that does tie in with the traffic jam. It's they're fleeing, you know, they're they're fleeing something and, and here they're their fleeing existence, which gives it this really existential horror that builds up on the movie that does culminate in that final scene for me. So that it it switches up from being something that is absurd and lightly comic to a horror piece. And and we should say, too, other figures that do appear throughout the film are ghosts. Mm-hmm. They're clearly identified as such. And they just sort of uh, maybe the most depressing thing about the movie is how that 
the ghosts are as resigned as the people they're mm-hmm. haunting. Yeah, you almost can't <laughs> distinguish them of, from each yeah, other. Yeah, they're just following exactly the pallor of these characters, which you referenced. I mean, they're all so pallid, but they're not any more than these ghosts. And they just trail behind them as well. And so it's it was a really strange experience watching this movie to be pulled back and forth from, you know, the compositional beauty or brilliance, I should say, and and the humor and then this sort of like just weight on your soul mm-hmm. of watching these people trudge through this existence. Yeah, it's not meant to be. And I thought of this early on. Is this supposed to be some kind of actual purgatory where everyone here is dead? And I don't think that's what Anderson's going for. He's more making the distinction. Well, everyday life is its own kind of purgatory in this version, in this fantasy version of Purgatory, the dead walk around among the living. What is the difference? And he doesn't offer a balm either when you think about it. I mean, the sex here is joyless that you see. It's not distinguishable at all Mm -hmm. from any of the other activities that these people are engaged in. Religion is very much portrayed as a sham. One of the characters is a salesman who you get the sense will sell whatever he thinks is going to sell. And right now he's into these large-scale crucifixes. Whatever you can add a couple zeros to, Josh. From, yeah, from, words to live by. From something he can hold in his hand to some, you know, something that's life-size. And um, that doesn't work for him. No. He comes to play in the final scene. Very integral there. And so whatever these people are suffering from, the things that other movies show people turning to as mm-hmm. a balm doesn't work here. No, that's true. And to that point, the second funniest scene in the movie, the other one that really did make me laugh out loud, is at this sales convention of some kind. The expo where this guy is saying that he thinks crosses, it's the way to go. Jesus on the cross, the next big thing. He's more relevant now than he'll ever be. It's the year 2000. He's the birthday boy, as he calls him. He says he won't be relevant again until the year 3000. So now's your chance. You got to get in on it. And while they're talking, again, those things that keep surprising us, the evolution of these sequences, static shot, They're in the foreground having a conversation, some salespeople in the immediate foreground, then more salespeople spread throughout. It doesn't sound that dynamic, but if you find that scene, if you haven't watched the movie yet, or if I can find a still frame of it, I will include it in our show notes because for it being just a boring expo scene of people standing, it's incredibly dynamic. Mm -hmm. The way the people are staged in the shot, the composition is more immediate and more exciting than it has any right to be. But while they're talking, just in the middle ground behind them, all of a sudden, one of the Jesuses on the cross, the nail comes out and he just starts swinging. So he knocks into it or something. (laughs) He just starts swinging. So the whole time, everyone's morosely moving around this expo and they're having this boring conversation. Jesus is there one hand nailed to the cross and he just keeps swinging. And so we get that great irony again of Jesus suffering, but it looks like he's actually having a ball. Like he's the only guy who's having fun the way he's swinging back and forth like a little kid. On It's it's hilarious. And to tie in with all the other scenes, like the guy who gets his hand caught in a train and is laying there and there's right. 20 people just staring at him. The two salesmen just keep talking. <laughs> there's yeah. The swinging between them and they just go on talking as if, you know, he's another commodity. Yeah. And the year 2000 stuff, I think appears a little bit prescient. I mean, it's being made or released in that year. It was a year where there was some anticipated turmoil. Maybe it was the apocalypse, Josh. And yet somehow it feels very much a movie of it's time right now. It feels like a movie that follows our own economic collapse where people are in the street, whether it was a few years ago or not, but the sort of Occupy Wall Street movement. It 
has echoes of that in everything that's happening here. And I think that's one of the things that ends up being so interesting about this film is it can kind of be whatever you want it to be. And yet, even though it was made 15 years ago in Sweden, and it really isn't any kind of a realistic film, it still very much informs our modern life here in the United States and probably throughout the world. That is our first film in the Nordic Cinema Marathon, contemporary Nordic Cinema Off Marathon. Off a great start, I'd It say. is, yeah. Roy Anderson's Songs from the Second Floor. We will get to the next film, Aki Karasmaki's The Man Without a Past. It's from 2002 from Finland. It's available via more platforms than Songs from the Second Floor. If you weren't able to follow along with this one, you can get The Man Without a Past from Netflix Rental and also rent it digitally from Amazon and iTunes. Of course, we always recommend that you check your local video store if you're lucky enough to have one or your local library. We'll get to that review in a couple of weeks, so you do have some time to catch up and you can get complete information and the full lineup for this contemporary Nordic Cinema Marathon over at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons right there at the top of the website. I did want to throw out, Josh, real quick, that we've been getting some good feedback already. People have been sharing some recommendations, and we did hear a lot of people say that they really wanted us to dive into Joachim Trier, Mm -hmm. the Norwegian filmmaker, and he's someone we did consider, but not too much, really, because he doesn't really fit into the scheme of these marathons where these are blind spots for us. And Trier is a guy who made Louder Than Bombs, his first English-language film, just came out. I've seen it. I do recommend it. We've both seen Reprise, and have we both seen Oslo, Oslo August yeah, 31, which that, as well. that was my number seven film of 2012. So seen all of his films to date, someone we do recommend, not really a discovery for us, but we look forward to any feedback we get throughout the marathon. We'll certainly consider any notes you share with us. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744, and you may hear it featured on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, vote in the current Film Spotting poll. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting, SVU, and The Next Picture Show. You can find both in iTunes. Out wide this weekend, The Darkness, a family returns from a Grand Canyon vacation with a supernatural presence in tow. Kevin Bacon stars and Money Monster, a movie if you heard our summer Are you preview. still boycotting this? I'm still really against Money Monster, somehow directed by Jodie Foster, starring George Clooney, Julia Roberts, and Jack O'Connell. Nothing like an open mind, Adam. <laughs> Unlimited release here in Chicago, being Charlie, a new film from director Rob Reiner. David Ehrlich actually calls it Reiner's best film in 20 years. And according to my notes here that Sam provided, that's a not uncommon critical response to the movie. I had no idea on paper I was not interested in this film at all, but maybe I'm wrong. What does that mean, Rob Reiner's best film in 20 years? That's I'm a trying really, to think of the films he's made in the last 20 years. No, that's a good question. A Bigger Splash is out. This is from the director of I Am Love with Tilda Swinton, Ray Fiennes, and Dakota Johnson. We are excited about that one. And Dark Horse is out, not to be confused with the 2011 Todd Solon's movie, but a See the Doc before they turn it into a movie about a Welsh barmaid who breeds a championship racehorse. I'm guessing she herself doesn't give birth to the racehorse. Just want to be clear on that. Thank you. High Rise is out. Last Days in the Desert also is out this weekend. Ewan McGregor, highly recommended by Josh, playing both Jesus and the devil. Want to talk about that movie. We really want to talk about a bigger splash, but the reality is the movie that's going to fit best into our schedules and the movie that did fit into my summer movie preview in the number one slot is The Nice Guys, the crime comedy 
Buddy movie starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. That's opening next weekend. We'll review it on next week's show. And our top five, we'll be back with a top five list. TBD, if you've got a great idea, share it with us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So Rob Reiner, in the last 20 years, here's what we've got. Laid on me. And so it goes. Mm. The Magic of Belle Isle, mm. Flipped, The Bucket List, Rumor Has It, Alex and Emma, The Story of Us, Ghosts of Mississippi, and then in 1995, The American President. Okay, so I have not seen all of those, but seen at least half of them. And what you're you've saying seen is- seen half of those? Yeah, I've seen Ghosts of Mississippi. I saw The Story of Us. Oh, that's a bad movie. I've only heard of The Bucket List. Oh, and The Bucket List, I saw that too. What? Yeah, we got a screener of it a few years ago, and I guess I was bored one night, and I actually watched it. So- what you're saying is Rob Reiner's last good film was The American President. I, I, I don't know. I don't think I've seen that one either. Well, that I'm in, one, I'm in that no position solid. to say. That's Sorkin, and you don't appreciate Sorkin, so maybe you won't appreciate uh, The American President. I don't President. know if that's quite fair, but we'll get to that later. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is from Licky Lee. More information is at lykkeli.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So the new Radiohead video comes out, which we find out about because listeners start immediately sharing with us on Twitter, knowing that it's Paul Thomas Anderson who directed it, that of course we're going to care, especially me, after him being the guy I was rooting for most there in Film Spotting Madness. And I was going to be all set, Josh, to talk about it this week, especially because it was interesting to see, and I retweeted this over the weekend, that the music box ran the video. It's about six minutes long, I think. They ran it over the weekend and I think are doing it this week at other screenings before some of their features. So you can actually watch this beautifully shot. I've seen half of it. Come on. (laughs) I knew you'd love that. I couldn't couldn't make all six minutes. Stoplights? I couldn't make all six minutes. What how does that happen? What happened at the three minute mark? I don't know. You don't even remember? I'm like I'm like that dog in up. I'm like squirrel. And my head turns and I don't believe I get you distracted. ever watched all of Once Upon a Time in Anatolia at this point. <laughs> I just can't, I can't fathom that physically happening. It was three months apart, Josh, but I yeah, finished right. it. Right. I'm sure it made a lot <laughs> no, more sense No, I haven't sense finished it yet. It's ridiculous. I know. But you can definitely see the fingerprints of Paul Thomas Anderson all over it, even in the first half of it, Josh, just because of the, the tracking shots. So it's, it's gorgeous. It myself, and so. I would love to see it on the big screen. I'm going to start by just finishing the video on YouTube one of these Just start days. it over at the beginning, please, when you do get I to it. I promise I'll do that. <laughs> yes, all six minutes. Ant-Man doesn't qualify, but row. Daydreaming will. Uh, I didn't really watch much else. I didn't catch that. Uh, we, we had a busy weekend. We I was at back. a wedding. Yeah, we jumped back into Master of None. And I think we're about the eighth episode now. So we watched two of those. Have you watched any of that? No. And I'm drawing a complete blank on even the, what the it Z-Sansari, is. Sansari. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Netflix. Uh, it's really funny and very sweet. We jumped in on the one. Um, old People. I think is I think is the the name of this episode and sometimes they almost verge on like too good to be true sweet mm-hmm. like you know he starts out being 
um, callous and rude to uh, his friend's grandpa and then comes around by the end hanging out. with It, it kind of toys with that um, grandma, the Lily Tomlin element of wacky old people a little yeah. bit. Um, but but it, it was it was nice overall. So we're going to try to keep up with that. Otherwise, we went really highbrow and watched things in in real life at the Art Institute, the Van Gogh exhibit, Van Gogh's mm. Bedrooms. It was the last weekend Fancy. for that. I know. Well, it's it's one you know it worked well taking the kids too because they just focus on the three bedroom paintings that he did in the yellow house and talk to you about what was going on in his life with each one and also like really microscope look at the differences among them. And that worked for me because Mm -hmm. not being a fine art guy, when you get these career retrospectives or even period retrospective exhibits, it can be a little overwhelming, but just having it that focused was kind of cool. It was jammed there, but Mm. um, uh, yeah, so that was fun. And then that's when we went to see April and the Extraordinary World too. So at Cisco, so that worked out well. Yeah. The only other thing that I did over the weekend that was interesting from an artistic point of view was I went to comic book day. That's that was Saturday too, right? Well, it just worked out that I didn't know this was coming up the first Saturday in May. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the last time I bought a comic book, but we had just obviously reviewed civil war. And I had mentioned in that review how I actually, it's funny. It started as kind of a negative that I was a little bit disappointed with how the vision was handled. Though I guess it's credit to the movie that it made me want to learn more about the vision. And I was actually talking about just the vision overall as the character Character, is probably originally conceived and what he's capable of and what he's not capable of. But I got some tweets from a few different listeners about it. I'm trying to see if I can bring it up here. The listener, I'm pretty sure his name was Steven, who first contacted me. But he basically said, if you like... The Vision, or if you're interested in The Vision, you have to check out the new series. There's a new Vision series where he's basically trying to become human and assimilate into culture. And he said it's full of existential dread and musings about mortality. I think you would really go for it. I said, (laughs) yeah, go on. That basically sums me up. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to seek this out. Where should I start? And he said, we'll start with this new series. It's written by Tom King. So I was just trying to get some background if I had to go to the comic book store and look for it and not completely embarrass myself. So we're back in Iowa for a wedding. And then I catch on Twitter that free comic book day is Saturday. So that just seems like a perfect opportunity to go. I'm going to grab a few free comics. The kids can come along. Maybe they'll see a couple that Mm -hmm. they like. And I'll shell out some money as well and maybe buy some of these Vision comics. And I ended up buying two Vision comics. The only downside was they didn't have the vision zero zero one they so, had two and three. Oh, you can't do that so i'm gonna have to buy one somewhere else because obviously are you I waiting can't start. to read one or yeah okay good yeah i'm gonna okay. wait until i get one before yeah. i jump to two but it is pretty interesting if you just look at the covers like it says the visions on the mailbox you know like mm-hmm. a 50s style yeah house and then the second one is Mrs. Vision, this is just on the cover. She's like sweeping a robot body like under okay. the rug, you know, like nice. It's very clear what they're going for. And I'm really curious about it. But the real reason I'm telling this, Josh, and maybe you saw a little bit of this over the weekend is it's just fascinating. Sometimes the connections you make and you don't know who is always listening to the show out there. And this listener is saying, yeah, dive into the series by Tom King. Well, then 
Tom King sees this on Twitter. I did see that. He sees this on Twitter and he's like, yeah, and the series is actually written by a diehard film spotting fan. I've been Mm -hmm. listening since 2007. That's pretty cool. So that's awesome. And then he even adds later that the opening panel in 01, so obviously I haven't been able to look at it yet, he said is a searcher's homage, which he learned about because of film spotting. That was our first ever marathon that Sam and I did, of course, the Westerns Marathon. And the searchers was part of that. So the so fact that were we're in any way influencing, yeah, influencing. Well, well the before you knew who the vision was, someone someone said that to me. And I'm like, I'm gonna go with John Ford and John Wayne being more <laughs> influential there. But the fact that we had any role at all is really fascinating, and it's just great to hear. And so I can't wait to dive in, and hopefully somewhere down the road, maybe we'll have Tom King on in some capacity. That would be great. How were the free comics? Because I heard them talking about uh, it on pop culture happy hour Mm -hmm. and they were describing some of them and they sounded pretty cool did you guys pick up did the kids key into any or i had a hard time getting the two oldest holden and sophie to even want the free comic books really which is weird because holden is the biggest nerd in the world right he's just a nerd but he doesn't read comic books yeah but the two youngest found a bunch that they wanted to read i mean mainly like pokemon and those kind of comics but they found two or three each that they really liked. And we went out to lunch afterwards and we actually did this for the first time where, do you ever do this? We had never done it. We set the kids at a different table. They were right well, next to us. I don't have as many kids no, as you No, that's true. Do, but we, so we, we sat That we would sat be a little floor. odd for our family. <laughs> at you their two, own table. You two sit here. The two of us that are going to sit weird. here. That would be weird. <laughs> but we sat them at their own four-person table. Oh, yeah. And then we sat at a little round table totally next to them. I totally do that if I had four. And watched them read the comics, at least those two. Well, and then, of course, Holden ended up grabbing one of the comics from them, and he was reading it even though he didn't want to get one. So, <laughs> yeah, it it was fun, and we'll see if it keeps them reading any comics. Nice. 